Well, you may find it hard to believe, but the Bowmans still have lots of boxes. I know several of you uh, know how many boxes we have because you still feel it some mornings when you wake up having moved them. Lots of books, lots of other things. But there's one thing that we couldn't find for quite some time. Now, I'm not accusing, (laughs) but something we couldn't find until recently. It was our wedding album. Carol was looking for our wedding album. We'd go and look through boxes. Turns out when we had the hurricane come through that Carol actually evacuated that um, as one of those irreplaceable things. Uh, Pictures from nearly 27 years ago. Pictures of one of the most incredibly joyful days in my life. The day Carol and I were married. A simple wedding. It was at Hueytown United Methodist Church. We were only permitted to put two small little flower arrangements in, in the building. Our reception was in the basement fellowship hall there at the church. My family was there and hers. Our friends. It was a fantastic day. And we've, got a, we've got a video of it. Yes, it's a VHS video. And, and we still have a device. I'm kind of scared to put it in because those tapes get old and those machines get old and they tend to eat things. I've got to convert at some point to digital uh, so that that day would be uh, preserved even beyond the uh, lifespan of, of VHS tapes. The uh, video was taken from way back up in the balcony, a little bit grainy, a little bit far off, but there's one, one spot that always gets my attention and always gets a comment as, as people watch our wedding video. The photographer couldn't get a picture from where he was of, of Carol coming in. He couldn't get a picture of Carol as she was entering into the sanctuary, so instead he settled for a much, much lesser shot. He, he panned up and, and he got as close a picture as he could of my reaction as I laid eyes on Carol in that beautiful white wedding dress on that amazing day. It was a day of great celebration. It was a day of great joy, not because we did as many folks do and spend tens of thousands of dollars for one day. We we certainly did not come close to that. It's not because we did everything just like all of our our college friends did. And it was because of, of who was there. My bride was there. I showed up too. (laughs) It was all about the joy of the relationship and the celebration of our marriage. Now, we got married about a year after college, and many would go to weddings because they were anticipating their wedding day, or they were having experienced their own wedding day, showing up to critique how nobody did it quite as good as they did. You know, many may have been there and looking and saying, oh, wow. Wow, that's awful small. It's awful dinky. It's not that pretty. It's not that fancy. But you want to know a secret? I don't care. (laughs) It was about the relationship. The relationship that began uh, that day, the official marriage of me and my bride. Jesus uses the, the metaphor of the bridegroom very poignantly in this next section of text. And... He uses it in response to those who, once again, are looking to criticize what he is doing, criticize how he is leading his disciples, wanting to find fault and to pick. Let's look at the text together. Mark chapter 2, 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch uh, tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we, we hear uh, a instruction, clarification, elaboration of truth by our Savior. And he speaks of weddings and bridegrooms and wine and skins. As he is quizzed on fasting, as he is challenged for his, uh, his ministry among his disciples, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us understanding, Lord God. And Father, may we leave this place today having heard the word of God and having been changed. Father, be with us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we begin by by looking. It says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came. When it says the people came, this was the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, and others who had been led by that. They were observing and noting what's going on. And they come to Jesus and they say, I, I see a disconnect here. Why, why is it that we see the religious people, the religious leaders doing one thing, uh, but your, your people are doing something different? Well, in particular, the Pharisees were looking to find fault with Jesus. They were looking for anything to, to dig into his credibility, to undermine his popularity. They were jealous. They were jealous that crowds, not out of uh, uh, guilt-ridden, legalistic burdens, uh, were following Jesus. They were excited to do so. They were not being told that you, you must do this, otherwise you will not be, be loved of God. They were excited by what they hear. They were desirous to hang on every word of Jesus and to see what was going on. Now, this does beg a bit of the question, because it doesn't say that just the Pharisees or just the scribes of the Pharisees were asking the question, but it says the people, the people. Many people came and were asking uh, questions of Jesus. Why is it that we see John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fasting, but not your disciples? Well, that does raise the question then, how did they know that these others were fasting? Now, Jesus gives us very clear instruction, uh, particularly on the Sermon on the Mount, about how it is we're to fast. We're not to fast in such a way that others would look and say, wow, they must be really religious. Look at them fast. He says, don't, don't walk around looking gloomy. And somebody asks you, why are you in such a bad mood? Why are you grumpy? Why do you look so awful? And you say, oh, I'm fasting. He said, no, comb your hair. Put on a smile. Be joyful in the midst of that. It also raises the question, why did John's disciples fast? You see, the Pharisees were fasting because that was an adopted practice that they had, had added onto uh, the religious requirements that they had adopted. They fasted two days a week, Mondays and Thursdays, essentially. And they did so because they felt that they were genuinely religious and religious people did that sort of thing. They believed that they were being very earnest about their religion and they wanted others to know it and they wanted that to be, be seen, how they were fasting and how they were being even more religious than even Scripture called them to be. You know, when you, when you read through the Scripture, the, the one required fast uh, was on the Day of Atonement. It, it was that when at Yom Kippur uh, that you would, you, would, you would fast in recognition of, of our sins and how we do need the atoning sacrifice of another. 
But the Pharisees taught that anybody serious about God would have to be far more religious than just one day in 365. So they added these frequent, frequent, very zealous, very passionate fasts to be truly religious. Now, what about John's disciples? John's disciples were, I, I, I do believe we see the clear testimony, they were faithful uh, people who were excited uh, about the, the ministry of John. They were excited about the uh, fact that he was a harbinger, uh, an anticipation of the one who was to come. But, but John's disciples fasted for, I do believe, two reasons, as we see it here. One is that they believed, rightly so, that the Messiah uh, was, was, was soon to be uh, pouring out his judgment on the nation uh, as John said, the axe is being laid to the root of the tree. And in the, in the shadow of impending judgment, it is right that there would be a fasting, that there would be a, a zealous pursuit of God, of, of prayer and fasting. But there was something else that was going on in the, uh, the life of John's disciples right there, is their leader was in prison. And, and Scripture does give the example not of a required fast, but of that fast that we do when we have those things that are heavy upon our heart that we would for a, a, a season recognize that we are utterly dependent on God, that not even food can supplant our dependence on God. And, and our emphasis on, on eating and, and physical sustenance would even be set aside, that we would draw near and, and rest on God alone. Now, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he warns about the hypocrisy of Pharisaic fasting. That, and he also does commend true fasting and true prayer to his disciples when they're special needs. Jesus himself fasted for 40 days, did he not? Uh, right there at, before his temptation in the wilderness. Uh, the Christian faith does support that there are times for a decision, uh, a special time of fasting by individual Christians or even congregations and groups. But the Pharisees had said, oh, no, no, no. We, we fast uh, because we are religious. We fast because it's what we do. Interestingly, once you get beyond the Gospels, uh, if you do just even a simple word search of, of the New Testament, the only time you'll find the word fast in the New Testament beyond the Gospels is when you're told to stand fast. Uh, that, that really the apostles do not pick up on that as being uh, a part of the uh, the regular practice of the church, as, as many would teach it, they would, they would teach it as some sort of master key that we're missing out on to get some sort of divine blessing. There are many who would say that, that fasting is that, that, that one thing that, that if we do it, then we really force the hand of God. But as we experience trials, as we go through difficult times, our Savior does say that it's good and right. It's good and right that we would perhaps fast beyond a meal, beyond a day as we trust and are provided for completely by God. So the problem is the Pharisees are kind of stirring up some issues around the people who are looking. They're seeing a disconnect, and they ask this question, why is it that your disciples don't fast? Well, there's two things, I think, uh, that are key here. And when Jesus speaks about the wedding and when Jesus speaks about uh, the wineskins, there's two issues uh, that are greatly uh, on point here, I do believe. One is joy. As I mentioned, is there a moment... For, for greater joy, we think about the birth of children, we think of, of, of other occasions in our life, but, but a wedding that I would be not only uh, overjoyed, but even a bit shocked that a beautiful girl would agree to marry me. Jesus uses this metaphor of a wedding. Uh, he uses the wedding, the bride, and the bridegroom. Now, just before Carol and I got married, uh, there was a high school friend of hers um, we were at Carol's house. Carol was telling me the story that she had just heard. A high school friend of hers had just had a distressing event. 
her fiancé had broken off the engagement. And he broke it off just a week before the wedding. I see the scowls. But hold on. It gets worse. He broke this engagement off just a week before the wedding with a note. I hear the gasps. Hold on to your seat. It gets worse. He broke off the engagement just a week before the wedding with a note that he stuck under the windshield wiper of her car. Okay, now, we can all boo. We can all hiss, right? Now, I I contend that 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 very, very cowardly way of going about that uh, was only made possible because Facebook tweets and emails were not yet invented. Yes, it was in the dark ages, kids. But now, I want you to imagine for just a second a really foolish scenario. Let's be, let's be kind of foolish about, what, what if they went ahead with the ceremony? The ceremony of the, the bride and the, and, and the gown, the, the pastor, the church, the rehearsal dinner, the reception. Only no bridegroom. Would that be an occasion of great joy? Would it be a celebration? Or would it be some sort of strange commemoration of, of a horrible event? <laughs> Can you imagine the toasts? Probably a bit sarcastic, right? <laughs> Bitter, condemning. <clears throat> Goes to show that joy is not found in ceremonies that are prompted by grudging obedience. Joy is not to be found in going through the motions. Joy is not found in adherence to mere custom. And, and know this. Know this, one of the reasons that I believe the Pharisees are, are so critical of Jesus here is that the joyless just cannot stand to be around the joyful. The joyless cannot stand to be around the joyful. I mean, have you known those types of people that they are just, they're just never, they're never happy, there's never a joy in their life, and, and they will just leap to criticism about anybody they see who, who has a, a joy, an excitement, a, a zeal, a positive, wondrous zeal about their life. The joyful that we see, the joyful that Jesus speaks about here, are those who are in a relationship with Jesus. He speaks about the bridegroom is here with them. I am here with them. And as we prayed earlier, as we acknowledge and worship that Jesus promised in Matthew 28, I will be with you always, even to the end. We, we understand the presence of our Savior with us always. Now, he did physically ascend. He physically did leave his disciples. Uh, but spiritually, he has been with us always, fully, absolutely. And perfectly with us always. And so there is a joy to know the bridegroom with us. We celebrate in that presence. There's a great hymn. great hymn of our faith. The church is one foundation. The church is one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. And in the midst of that, there's a beautiful hymn text that picks up on this metaphor. And he says, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Such a a beautiful poetic expression of the reality of Jesus the bridegroom loving us and bringing us to himself to be in that relationship forever. That little story I told about the runaway groom, the cowardly note under the windshield wiper. Christian, be, be assured this morning that that is fully the opposite of the reality of Jesus. Fully the opposite, not cowardly, but bold, not running away, but running to, not abandoning, but fully present. And there is great joy in that. We need to understand the stage that has been set for Jesus speaking of this today. When he speaks about the bridegroom being with the bride, understand the context of that even beyond just that moment. 
We need to rejoice in knowing that Jesus indeed is Hosea. He is the one who chases Gomer, his, his bride, his wayward bride, that she would no longer be unfaithful. He travels miles to bring her home. He spends what he has, the capital that he has, to buy her, to purchase her, to bring her home, that she would no longer be unfaithful, but to be his faithful bride. Christ pursues us. He loves us. He's faithful even when we're not. He has gone to the greatest of lengths to establish that relationship with you. And beyond that, in the presence of the bridegroom. We, we don't just simply know the, the moment of the wedding and, and then go on to, to live separate lives. But indeed, we, we read in Ephesians about how the marriage relationship of husband and wife is, is patterned after the relationship of Christ and his church. That, that Christ washes us, he cleanses us, he keeps us. And in this relationship, we're joyful. Flip over there with me, if you would. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll, we'll start, I'll start reading in, in verse 25. That is very interesting. Uh, there are many, many husbands that will run to this passage, and it, it does speak to wives right up front. But understand this, that to wives it speaks of verse 22, verse 23, and verse 24. But then to husbands, Paul writes verse 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, and then there's a passing mention back to the wives right there. Uh, Husbands, make sure that we, as we spend time in this passage of Scripture, understand uh, the high responsibility that that husbands have been given. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes, by inspiration of the Spirit, husbands love your wives. How are we to love them? He says, as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. What an incredible picture. He's saying, husbands, you need to understand the joy of the relationship, the joy of the presence of the bridegroom, that you would indeed pattern that as best a sinful man like you can by the strength of the Holy Spirit. The behavior of joyful men and women is contrary to what the Pharisees are doing right here. In Mark chapter 2, the Pharisees are nitpicking. They're steeped in, 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 in gloom, bitterness. They're, they're covered in a grudging obedience and believe that in that obedience that they themselves are made righteous. And the behavior of the joyful is contrary to that. The behavior of the joyful is knowing that our joy comes from the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Remember that Hebrew idiom, that idea that I'm going to repeat something to make sure you heard it the first time. We, we don't say simply rejoice a lot in the Lord. We say rejoice in the Lord. Oh, and did you not hear me? I said rejoice in the Lord. That we are to be joyful. That does not mean that tears don't flow. Our Savior, as, as he stood before the grave of Lazarus, he wept. As he looked across Jerusalem and he understood how many were, were turning and walking uh, from the gospel as it was manifested right there in their presence, he, he was grieved. And there are, there are tears that flow. We hurt. There is real pain, but it is a pain that cannot touch our joy because the bridegroom never goes away. You will find no note under your windshield wiper. You will never be told, I no longer love you. 
That's what Jesus is saying here. And, and the Pharisees were believing that it was in their practice, and if their practice should fail, then so does their righteousness. And if their righteousness fails, then they have no source for any type of happiness or joy. And Jesus says, oh, so long as the bridegroom is with you, there's joy. And how long is the bridegroom with us? Forever. We look back in Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 6 says, Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. It's an incarnational joy. It is that idea that in the birth of Jesus, it was good news of a great joy. That is that the bridegroom is here, that he is with us, and he will never leave us. So we begin by looking at this, and Jesus uses this idea of the wedding and the bridegroom to remind us that we have a joy, a joy that cannot be touched a joy that cannot be taken away, a joy that can only be made more and more full in our life as we grow in our relationship with him until that day we see him face to face. Oh, how amazing is that? But Jesus brings out a second and a corollary to it example to speak about this idea when others are saying, well, why aren't your disciples fasting? He speaks about our usefulness, our usefulness. Now, there would be a correlation in people's minds in the day. You have a wedding, you're going to have wine. But that's not the connection here. Uh, Jesus speaks about the bridegroom, and he speaks about the wine and the wineskins because there were those who believed that behaviors and ceremonies would sustain them and save them. And Jesus said that's like taking a new patch and putting it on an old wineskin. The old wineskin would be destroyed. And it'd be like taking new wine and putting it in an old stretched-out wineskin because it would burst, and both the wine and the skin would be ruined. A little background there. Wine was basically kept, and it was kept in, in sheepskins. Uh, they were removed from the body of the animal without cutting them so that you would only have uh, a couple of holes where the legs and the head, that sort of thing, were, and these were bound shut. And the wine skin would have some uh, elasticity. A new skin would have some elasticity uh, when it was new so that the wine would be, as it fermented, uh, expanding, and so would the skin. Now, an old skin would have lost all of that stretch, all of that suppleness, and it would crack or it would even explode with new wine that would continue to expand. Well, the gospel we need to understand is not a patch on your sinful life. The gospel is not simply a band-aid that you put over your little sinful boo-boos. It doesn't teach that you simply add church attendance or a functional prayer or an occasional Bible reading. Jesus never says Add these things to your life, your already existing life. Add these things to what you currently do, and it will all be well with you. I remember buying a house years ago. I was new to the whole homeowning process. Um, I um, uh, went along with the home inspector. The home inspector was coming to look the house over from stem to stern, and I followed along with him. And I'd bug him with all kind of questions. I, I didn't know anything about the house systems. I didn't know anything about the way things worked. And everything he did, I would ask questions. I would watch because I had a vested interest. This was a house I was spending more money than I even knew existed, uh, you know, as, as a young married couple buying a house in South Huntsville. Well, outside he took an object, kind of like an ice pick, and he began to probe in an area that I noticed had fresh paint on it. I asked him, what are you doing? Why are you poking holes in my new house? And he replied, I'm checking for rotten wood. I said, okay, well, why did you pick this spot to check for it? He said, uh, that's fresh paint. And that, that's a trick that some sellers would, would try to do. They'd paint over a rotten spot, hide it. That's not a fix because the rot, the problem is still underneath, right? The Pharisees lived their lives based on the premise 
uh, that they had since birth lived good lives. And what they would do now is add more and more and more good things to their already pretty good lives. And, and that became the height of righteousness to them. They would say, sure, yeah, uh, we understand that all we like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah made that uh, statement so clear. Each of us has turned to his own way. But they believed that it would be through the addition of righteousness to their lives that they would be made okay with God. And you see, that was the idea of adding a patch to uh, a wineskin. And Jesus also said, too, and understand that these old wineskins can't contain the new wine of the gospel because they're patched together and they're stretched, they're weak, and they fail. The Pharisees believed that they could add good things and go above and beyond and make things okay. We, too, kind of end up looking at our lives and begin to ask questions that are very similar to what the Pharisees had in, in their point of view. Uh, how much do I need to do? How often do I need to go to church? How much should I give? How long should I pray in order that God would love me? In order that I would be righteous? How little can I get away with? Can, can I just tithe on the net, not the gross? <laughs> If I do more than the minimum, more than the next guy in the pew, then I must be really good, right? Well, imagine with me a little expansion of Jesus' metaphor. As we think about the, the, the old wineskin and the patches and the new wine and the old wineskins and the idea that we try to, to do the, the minimum or even a little bit beyond that in order to, uh, to contain the new wine of the gospel in our lives. Well, go back to the metaphor of the wedding and the bridegroom. Imagine this for a second, brides. Brides, you're standing there, and you're on your wedding day. Imagine if at that moment you decided that you wanted to establish some sort of agreement with your bridegroom. Just how much do I need to do to be an acceptable wife? How many, uh, how fancy does our wedding need to be for it to really count? How many times do I need to kiss you each week to be a good wife? How many times do I need to tell you that I love you? What is the minimum amount of time acceptable for us to spend together in order for us to continue to be a couple? I want you to specify this. I want you to come up with the standards, and I will seek to live by those standards. But now imagine that you were able to compile that list. And if you were to compile the list of what it took to be an acceptable wife, you, each of you ladies I know, would be outstanding wives, right? Because you would exceed that standard. You would do more. You'd spend twice as much money on the wedding. You would kiss your husband twice as many times as your nuptial contract required. You would tell your husband that you love him twice as much as you had agreed upon, and you would spend twice as many hours with him. Now imagine you did all that, not because you loved him, but because you wanted to be known as a great wife. You didn't do those things because you enjoyed being with him, because you enjoyed kissing him, you enjoyed telling him of your love. You wanted to be able to boast about how great a wife you are. That you could be hired to teach others how to be a fantastic wife. That you could write a bestseller and have it on the New York Times list about how to be an exceedingly wonderful wife. That you would be hailed as the master wife and even get a series on TLC. (laughs) Are you a good wife? No. No. In our relationship as we pursue things to be known as a good follower of Jesus or to try to even earn his love is such a sad and a joyless thing. Now, we don't question the zeal of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very, very emphatic about what they did 
And they pursued it with all of their strength. But their path, though it was zealously traversed, was not a path leading to salvation. It was zealous, but it was condemned. Let me give you the proof of that. Just make a note and and, and go back and, and read this as we consider this idea about trying to earn God's love, about trying to earn and manifest his favor in what we do. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 5. Jesus speaking of the, the Pharisees, he said, they do all their deeds to be seen by others to get that show on TLC, right? For they, they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Those are those things that they would wrap around themselves as they would bind the word on them that others would see what they're doing. They love the places of honor at the feast and they love the best seats in the synagogues Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, he says, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. You hear the zeal behind it? They would go all over the place to recruit one in their midst, to teach them their path, their standard, their way of salvation. And when he becomes a proselyte, Jesus says, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Oh my, those are harsh words. And Jesus warns, he says, no, you must not. You must not pursue the joyless path of saying, I am going to do these things to earn God's love. No, we are to rejoice. We are to rejoice because he's not instructed us to put the new wine into old wineskins. What are we if we're in Christ? A new wineskin. If we're in Christ, we're a new creation. The old things, the old wineskins have passed away. Not patched up, but passed away. The new wine is in the new wineskins. All things have been made new because of the bridegroom because of the relationship we have with him. And in this we rejoice. We don't grumble. We don't murmur. We don't nitpick. We don't accuse as they were doing in this moment. But we are always, always united with our bridegroom who sought us out, who brought us home, and reminds us constantly that we are his and he is ours. And in this, in this we rejoice and are glad. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Lord God, I ask that this day would be a day that we would know just a bit more of the joy of your presence with us, the joy of your salvation, the joy of your abiding with us always, that we might know that you have pursued us, you have won us, you have purchased us, and that you are in the process of of transforming us each and every day more and more into your image, but you have already accomplished that before the eyes of God, that we stand righteous because of your righteousness and not our own. Forgive us, Lord, for trying to patch up our old lives. May the lives that we live, Lord, be new and fresh. May they be given of you. And may we praise your holy name. For we love you. And, Father, we thank you for our bridegroom, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.